The title of the talk this evening is The Birth of Wisdom. So I, I'd like to share a little of my, my background, a little bit about how I, uh, how I got involved in this practice. I grew up in a family outside of New York City where academic learning and knowledge were highly valued. And so I pursued education and educational achievement, which culminated in my getting a PhD in clinical psychology. One of my first internships in doing that program was a year of working as a clinical psychologist at Juvenile Hall half the week and suicide prevention the other half of the week. That was for a year. Mind you, that was a challenging year. It pretty much brought me to my knees because I was coming in contact with a level of suffering that I saw that psychology, as many gifts as it has to offer, didn't have the uh, solution to solving the kinds of suffering that I was coming in contact with. And so because of that, I think I experienced more openness in my own being to looking around and seeing what else was available. And around that time, I met a Tibetan Lama. I went to some of his teachings, and I was very struck by the not only the way in which he talked about suffering and about compassion, but what I saw in his being was compassion itself. And that inspired me very much to learn more about the Buddhist teachings. And so I started um, sitting retreats. I sat some Tibetan retreats, some Zen retreats. It took me a couple of years before I wandered into this stream of Buddhist practice, the insight meditation stream, my first teacher being Joseph Goldstein. So before you knew it, I was back at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts sitting a three-month meditation retreat. Now, at that time, Joseph's teacher was visiting and teaching at that retreat. And his, he was from India, Indian man from Bodh Gaya. His name was Munindraji. And he was... He, he was a wonderful teacher, and one of the things he, he talked about, which really was life-changing in a way for me, was that he said that many of his finest students were peasant women who lived outside of Bodh Gaya. Now, to my educated white middle-class mind, this seemed, un, you know, like, peasant women? They can do this? They can have awakening experiences and, you know, practice the Dharma. It just seemed so, uh, I, in my limited view, had a hard time opening to that. But when I heard it, there was also some kind of flash of recognition. And I saw that this was a way of learning that had nothing to do with years of academic pursuit, that this way of learning was a whole different journey, and I got very eager to follow it and very excited to learn more about how to learn from mindfulness itself, how to make mindful awareness the path, 
how to allow mindfulness to show me what it is I needed to learn, because that is what mindful awareness does. It shows us the path that we each need to walk. It shows us what we need to learn. It teaches us, it guides us. The Buddha said over and over again to people who came to him for teaching, he said, do not believe anything I tell you. Do not believe it because you think you know you should or I'm the teacher, you're the student. He said, just come see for yourself. Test the truth of these teachings in your own experience and see for yourself if what I say is true. I had never heard anybody say that I could trust my experience to that extent. And it was a great um, revelation and a great inspiration for my practice. I see now that this is the beginning of wisdom. This is the birth of wisdom. When we turn this mindful awareness towards our experience and begin to notice what is present, begin to see that we can bring this kind of open awareness to our moment-to-moment experience. So let me talk a little bit about wisdom and how it is different from knowledge. We could say there is a tremendous amount of knowledge in the world, tremendous amount of information. We live in an information age. We could see that on the internet, on the internet, there's like, you you want to know something, Google it, it's there. We have so much information And that's a good thing. I'm not saying anything that it's not good. But this is not wisdom. There's tremendous amounts of information, but it doesn't necessarily add up to wisdom. Let me read you what Marcel Proust wrote about wisdom. He said, we do not receive wisdom. We must discover it for ourselves. After a journey through the wilderness, which no one else can do for us, which no one can spare us, for our wisdom is the view from which we come at last to see the world. The view from which we come at last to see the world. I would add that we come at last to see ourselves, to understand ourselves. So wisdom is this change of view, a way of seeing. And it begins with this quality of present awareness. Wisdom coexists with an open mind. This openness is highly valued in the practice of mindfulness. It is sometimes called beginner's mind. It is said that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And that's the difference between knowledge, being an expert on something, and wisdom. Wisdom is open. Wisdom entertains a number of different possibilities, a number of 
different uh, views or theories. Or we could reference the Yogi Berra Sutra. You probably didn't know he wrote sutras, but he wrote really short sutras. And the one I like is, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. We think we're supposed to know, and so we spend a lot of time in our lives, in our education, in our learning, trying to be knowledgeable. And when we come to practice, we discover that actually too much knowledge, too many concepts may get in our way. We may find ourselves trying to fit the meditation experience into something we have read or that we have heard somewhere or that we have a theory about. And we may feel frustrated when it doesn't fit, it doesn't match, which it usually doesn't. And actually, that's a good thing. But in the short run, it can be confusing. Mindful awareness asks us rather to be open to a new way of seeing, to see freshly with new eyes. Instead of judging our experience, having opinions about our experience, can we turn that? Can we turn all of that into curiosity? Can we make ourselves available to being curious about our moment-to-moment experience, about our habits of mind, about our emotions? This is a very helpful transformation when we can turn our habit of criticism and self-judgment into curiosity. Because we often have a lot of self-judgment about what arises. Has anybody here today had any judgment about their meditation or about their practice or about their minds? Yeah, it comes with the territory. Instead of being curious, we just want to make our mind behave, right? You just want to get a grip. You just want to get them, get it under control. You know, you come thinking peace, bliss, happiness. That's what I need. And what do you get? Not that exactly, at least not on the first day. So you tell your mind to, you know, be quiet. Stop with the wandering around. Does it obey you? Does it stay present? You say, okay, we're going to be present. Present awareness, it sounds so simple. Just be present. That's pretty much what we've been saying today. What happens? What happens? Are you in charge? Does it do what you want it to do? It's kind of shocking, isn't it? Out of frustration, we try to exert some control. And then what happens is our practice becomes a struggle. A struggle between what we consider a good meditation and what we consider a bad meditation. We all know what those are. We don't even have to describe them. Or worse, becomes a struggle between the good me and the bad me. I'm having a good meditation, I'm a good person, I'm a spiritual person, I I really am 
I'm having a bad meditation. No, I'll never be a spiritual person. I'm not fit for it. I'm some other kind of human being. So we get into this struggle. So although this is understandable and almost inevitable, this is not the point of meditation. We are not here to wage a battle. We are actually here um, to open ourselves with patience, with kindness, with acceptance, with awareness to the truth, to the truth of how things are. And so we need to reflect in ourselves, do we care to know the truth? Can we value the truth? I remember a time in my practice when instead of being, I, I was having a lot of worry arise about a particular issue. And it, you know, as those things arise, we can, you know, they, they become bothersome. We, 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 do, we worry once and we worry twice. And by the 15th time we're worrying, we begin to think, you know, too much. I don't want to worry anymore. And I remember the time when I understood the lesson that I have just told you, that instead of being judgmental about the worry, I took a stop, I could take a step back and become more curious about how it was behaving. Asking myself, what happens when worry is present? How does it affect the body? How does it affect the mind? What is the story it is telling me? What does it do to my whole sense of myself when worry is present? And then I could say, oh, this is worry. This is not me. This is not about me doing it wrong. This is just the way worry is. This is the nature of worry. This is what it does to every person. This kind of turning of ourselves towards our experience with this kind curiosity helps us to observe what is present without getting so caught in it, so lost in it. The teacher Almas writes, the way we ordinarily see the world is not the way it really is, because we see it from the perspective of our judgments and preferences, our likes and dislikes, our fears and our ideas of how things should be. So to see things as they really are, which is, which is to see things objectively, we have to put these aside. In other words, we have to let go of our opinions. Seeing things objectively means that it doesn't matter whether we think what we're looking at is good or bad. It means just seeing it as it is. If a scientist is conducting an experiment, he doesn't say, I don't like this, so I will ignore it. He may not personally care for the results because they don't confirm his theory, but real science means seeing things the way they really are. 
If he says he's not going to pay attention to the experiment because he doesn't like it, that is not science. And yet, this is the way most of us deal with reality, inwardly and outwardly. So how do we do this? How do we go beyond our judgments and preferences? It's challenging, and we need to be willing to challenge ourselves. We need to value knowing the truth. We need to love the truth. We need to commit ourselves to discovering the truth of things. Bhikkhu Bodhi talked about this in the Buddhist teaching. He said, the tool the Buddha holds out to free the mind from clinging is understanding. When we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate closely with keen attention, clinging falls away by itself. In this kind of investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. Real security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. So we discover this as we go. We even develop over time a preference for truth. Why? Because it is the truth which frees us. Comfort will offer momentary consolation, but it is the truth of things that liberates, that frees us. So in our practice, in simple practice of mindful awareness, we commit to truth in simple ways. We begin to explore the truth in the simplest of ways. We call it being honest with ourselves. We call it being in touch with what it is that we are experiencing, by being in touch with when we like something, when we don't like something. And this, although simple, can have a very profound effect. There was a woman on retreat once who said after her, and I saw her on her second or third retreat, she came back and she said, you know, it was so amazing because after my first retreat, I went home and I was having uh, some time with her husband and they, they had this cheese that they had been eating for years and years that they had associated with the first time they ever went to Paris and the cheese and, you know, it was sort of a, a, a whole association. And she said, for the first time in my life, she said, I think I actually tasted the cheese. And I saw that I didn't actually like it. <laughs> so this kind of change, although very simple, for her was very profound. It was a teaching on how she was actually experiencing how things really were for her, not just the concept that, oh, this is the cheese we ate on our honeymoon, so it's the wonderful cheese that we always have. It was actually, no, I don't actually like this. So in small ways and in big ways, when somebody asks us a question, you want a piece of apple pie? We don't automatically say yes out of politeness. 
we may take a moment to check in and, and sense, do we really want a piece of apple pie? Or may we say, no, thank you, I'm, I'm fine, no apple pie, thank you. And bigger decisions, would you be on the committee to raise funds for the new roof? You better pause before that one. <laughs> Will you marry me? You better pause before that one. From mundane to life-changing questions, we have opportunities to be honest and trust our gut response, even when it doesn't make sense to our head, or it doesn't fit the image we carry of the person we think we should be, or even the person we would like to be. You know, somebody might ask, ask, will you marry me? And you'd think, gee, I'd love to be the kind of person that would love to marry you, you know, but I just am not. That's being honest. We begin to discern what is true for ourselves by staying in touch with the body. The body is truthful. Have you noticed? It says yes, it says no, and it doesn't always give you reasons. It may require a leap of faith to trust in it and go with what it is telling you. Mindfulness practice is a process of learning to trust in such a way, not just responding from the concept, from the belief, from the idea, but actually responding from the energetic experience. This is very important because in order to awaken all parts of our being, we need to stay true to our actual experience. We need to learn to trust an intelligence, a knowing that is not dependent on our conditioning, how we think we should be. And meditation teaches us how to do this moment to moment. We also become, as I've said, we become more attuned to the difference between our ideas about something and the reality. In the Audubon Field Guide to the Birds, it says, if there is a discrepancy between the description of the bird and the actual bird, believe the bird. <laughs> we live in a world of concepts, of words, of images, and we often get sucked into taking them to be reality. Our politicians seem to think that if you repeat lies enough times, people will believe them. Have you seen that? We fall under the spell of words, especially when we are young. We get told, oh, you're a bad boy. You're lazy. You're good for nothing. Oh, you're not smart. You'll, you'll never make it in the world. Or you're not pretty enough. You'll, you're too ugly. And we have all grown up with such words that have held, uh, held us in their spell until perhaps we have an opportunity to revisit and see if there is truth there or whether it was just somebody else's belief that we adopted. We have all grown up with a variety of stereotypes about ourselves, about others that often go unquestioned. Racial stereotypes, gender stereotypes, class, ethnic, sexual preference, stereotypes. 
these are projections created by others that we take to be true and real about ourselves or about others. There's a lot of suffering in our world because of this tendency to stereotype people. Our practice is a means of undoing and seeing through these false beliefs that we carry about ourselves, about others. Seeing them for what they are allows us to give back these projections. The same teacher that I mentioned before, Munindraji, the man from Bodh Gaya, he was giving a talk one night and he said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. Now, this is so obvious in a certain way, yeah, but take it in. It's pointing to the difference between our thought about something and the living reality of the thing itself. No thought we could ever have about our mother or about anybody else can ever capture the living reality of that person. In the same way, we could say to ourselves, the thought of myself is not myself. Where do you go with that one? Is it a relief? Some people say so. Especially if you're judging yourself all day. It's just a thought. It's just a word. It's just words. It's not the living reality. So mindful awareness in big ways and small ways shows us what is true. And it does that through the practice of, or the, the uh, qualities of awareness itself. So I'd like to spend a little time right now to look at awareness a little more closely. We've been using that word a lot today. I'd like to ask you to participate for the next minute or so. And that is to um, close your eyes just very briefly. You don't have to change your posture. And right now, Be aware of the sensations of your buttocks sitting on the chair or the cushion. Right now, shift your awareness. Be aware of the sensations in the palms of your left hand. Right now, be aware of the sound. Any sounds you might hear. Right now, be aware of the movement of your breath. All right, you may open your eyes. Now, was any of that difficult? Anybody find some difficulty in doing that? It's pretty immediate, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. It's pretty easy. It's pretty available. Awareness is always available. 
Do you get that? It's always present. If it doesn't seem like it's always present, why is that? What has happened? Awareness has not gone anywhere. It's us. We run away, we go off into fantasy, into thinking, into past, into future. Awareness is always present. Try to get rid of awareness. See if you can not be aware. Stop being aware. Stop, stop, stop being aware. (laughs) Have you done it yet? Does it work? It doesn't work. Awareness is always present, always immediate, always available. We can also look at awareness and see that it has no preferences. Awareness has no preferences. It has no opinions for or against. It simply reflects what is true. It is sometimes likened to a mirror. If you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, it's not the mirror that's having the problem. It's you. We are the ones we don't like. The mirror doesn't care if you look great or if you look horrible. The mirror is simply reflecting what is there, what is present. That is how awareness operates. Awareness is inclusive. It doesn't exclude anything. It doesn't exclude the ugly, the, the, all the stuff you don't like. Once you open the box, the Pandora's box of awareness, you're inviting everything to appear the good, the bad, and the ugly, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, they will all appear. Awareness is inclusive. Awareness is like a protection because when we are being mindful, we are less likely to be compulsively caught in hatred or aversion, in greed, in craving, in forgetfulness. It is like a protection that way. Thich Nhat Hanh says, mindfulness is the miracle by which we master and restore ourselves. It allows us to be fully alive in the present moment. So I'd like to ask you what I asked my group this afternoon. What is your experience of being fully present? What is it like to be present? Anybody? You've all had this experience. You you don't even need to come on a meditation retreat for one moment to know the answer to this question because we've all had experiences of being fully present. We've all had experiences of being very lost and distracted. That's part of the human thing, we go back and forth. So what is it like to be fully present? What is that like? Anybody? Alive. Alive. Thank you. What else? Clear. Clear. Yes. Delight. 
light. You feel light? Full. Peaceful. Peaceful. In your body. body. No judging. Sacred. Sacred. Free. Free. What a great list of things. Does it sound appealing? (laughs) Why wouldn't we want to be there all the time? What is it that takes us away? What is it like to not be present, to be lost? What is that like? Say some words. Huh? Fear. Fear. Fractured. Fractured. Frustrated. Frustrated. Dim. 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 Confused. Easily irritable. And there was one back here I didn't hear. Forgetful. Forgetful. Yeah, well, it's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? Yes? That's right. So what is that like? What, what would it be like to be fully present to something negative? Yes. Yes, that's right. And would there be a problem with that? Yeah, I don't either. Sad? Well, we'll be sad. Mad? Okay, we're mad. When there's no resistance to it, it's not a problem. It's part of our human thing. We get sad, we get mad. Can we do it with awareness, with presence? So let me read you what Eckhart Tolle who wrote The Power of Now, Mr. Now, what he says, I think he, he, he um, asks this really great question. He says, a vital question to ask yourself frequently is, what is my relationship to the present moment? I'll become alert to find out the answer. Am I treating the present as a means to an end? Do I see the present as an obstacle? Am I making it into an enemy? Since the present moment is all you ever have, since life itself is inseparable from the present, what the question really means is, what is my relationship with life? That's something to contemplate. So this is the tool we have to work with, this mindful awareness. And the Buddha spoke of four domains of experience which are particularly useful to bring this mindful awareness to. They're called the four foundations of mindfulness, four ways we can experience uh, the liberating power of our mindful awareness. The first domain is the domain of the body, the physical life, the physical experience. And today we've been bringing some attention to that, with the, both in the sitting, in the walking, in the qigong, just grounding your awareness in the physical body. The second domain of experience is what he called feelings. 
and this is not so much emotions as the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that arises in every moment of our experience. Every moment of our experience, we are experiencing pleasant sounds or unpleasant sounds, pleasant sights, unpleasant sights, pleasant thoughts, unpleasant thoughts. This quality of feeling is what grabs our attention and sends us off down the road. Something is pleasant, what happens? We want more. Something is unpleasant, what happens? We want to get rid of it. It starts this whole chain of, of, uh, of seeking for what we like and trying to get rid of what we don't like. If something is neutral, we fail to notice and we space out. So the feelings are very significant as a place of something to be aware of. Then there's the whole foundation of mental states, what we would call emotions. The Buddha said mental states as a way of reminding us that emotions have a mental component. They come with beliefs, with stories. Every emotion arises with a story to tell, a story about the past, or a story about the future, a story about who I am, a story about who others are. So the mental component is always present. But that is a whole area of practice and discovery that's very worth giving attention to. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is that of the domain of the laws of Dharma, the the sort of the natural laws of how it is in this reality that we live in a world, for example, I'll give two examples. Uh, One is that we live in a world of cause and effect, that our intentions, our actions ripple out and have an impact on our world, that nothing in this world is lost. What we do matters. We begin to notice the consequences of our intentions and our actions. When we act with anger or impatience, This has consequences. When we act with generosity or kindness, this has consequences. We notice it on retreat. We get very sensitive on retreat, and we begin to respond to each other and what what is happening, you know, in the space. Like, you know, do we, when we, do we leave a big mess in the dining room for somebody else to clean up or... Do we, when we, you know, in the bathroom, who's going to change the toilet tissue? Is it you or are you going to leave it for the next person? We begin to see that every action we take has consequences. It affects all of us in simple ways and large ways. Another of the natural laws is what the Buddha called the three characteristics of every moment of our experience. That every moment of our experience, when we look at it, we can see it is changing. Is there a moment of your experience that hasn't changed today? We see there's this constant play of change. We see that every moment of our experience is what is called empty of self. It's not a definition of who we are. It's not, uh, it's not meant to be the defining moment of our life. And when we try to uh, 
deny change or we try to make something into a self, we suffer we, by insisting that it be different than it is. Through mindful awareness, we can see all of these natural laws unfolding in our present experience. And we probably will be saying more about the, this whole list of the four foundations as the retreat goes on. But it all comes back again and again and again and again and over and over forever to the present moment. So here's another reflection on the present, this time by a teacher named Leonard Jacobson. He writes, you spend very little time in the present moment. Reality exists only in the present moment. Therefore, you spend very little time in reality. So, I have only a little more to say, and I just want to reflect back a little bit about what I've been trying to talk about. I've spoken a bit about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I have said that wisdom begins the moment we bring awareness to our present experience. Sometimes in the Buddhist tradition, awareness and wisdom are spoken of as the same. Awareness is sometimes called contentless wisdom. It simply knows what is happening without any commentary. The poet Rumi talked about this awareness as the radiant one inside of me who never says a word. This wisdom is cultivated in our practice by an attitude of openness and curiosity. What is this? What is it like, this feeling? Another way in which we grow in wisdom is by making contact with the truth of our actual experience. The word dharma means truth, and dharma practice is about living a life committed to truth. Krishnamurti said, it is the truth which liberates, not all of our efforts to be free. This is a truth, the truth that the Buddha taught is not a personal truth, but a universal truth. As at his death, he said to the last words, you know, the Buddha's dying, you got to get the last words, like, oh, tell us something really important to remember, you know. And what did he say? I just love this. He said, be a light unto yourselves. Be a light unto yourselves. So much did he trust the truth that lies within each of us that he said that as opposed to something like, well, memorize everything I told you and especially the rules. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, be a light unto yourself. Trust the truth of your own experience. So mindfulness is not about beliefs, but about discovering and living by the truth a truth that has the power to transform our deepest sense of who we are. 
I'll close with Trungpa Rinpoche talking about meditation practice. Meditation is not a matter of trying to achieve ecstasy, spiritual bliss, or tranquility, nor is it attempting to become a better person. It is simply the creation of a space in which we are able to expose and undo our neurotic games, our self-deceptions, our hidden fears. We provide space through the simple discipline of doing nothing. Actually, doing nothing is very difficult. I think you know this now. At first, we must begin by approximating doing nothing, and gradually our practice will develop. And I want to thank you for your attempts to stay awake during this talk. It's much appreciated. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 22, 2007. It is an off. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.